Have you ever wondered how a preacher understands the meaning of a passage in Scripture or a parable of Jesus? Well, they seek to put that passage into context. For the New Testament, this is a first-century Jewish worldview within a Greco-Roman setting. But how do we learn more about that? Thankfully, we have a lot of literature from this time period that helps us out. Though these works may not be in the Bible, they do help us place Jesus in his time and place. In this week's episode, Father Dustin speaks with his classmate, Father John Cox, who used a work called First Enoch to understand the parable of the wedding feast told in Matthew 22. The bottom line? Using Second Temple literature to give us a broader understanding of the worldview of Jesus' time helps us draw deeper meaning from the New Testament text. You're listening to The Way with Father Dustin Lyon, a podcast of the Ephesus School Network. Welcome, everyone. This is another episode of The Way with Father Dustin Lyon. Uh, with me today, I have uh, a very special guest, uh, Father John Cox, who was a classmate of mine at St. Vladimir's. And I always appreciated having him in class. He's a very intelligent, well-thought-out uh, individual. And um, so I'm glad he was able to join us. So thank you, to Father John, for uh, joining us today. My pleasure to be here. So I asked Father John to join us because we priests have a I think it's, I don't know if it's private, or at least it's a closed Facebook group online where we exchange sermon ideas, and we'll talk about the upcoming sermon, the lectionary, and Father John was talking about uh, his upcoming sermon, well, he's given it now, this past Sunday, and he had some, he had a really interesting uh, take on it, and I thought it would be something my listeners would really enjoy. So, I, first, I want to start off by reading the passage that he commented on, and so for those who are in the Greek Archdiocese, we read the the passage for the Feast of the Cross, but there are also other lectionary passages that could have been read that day. And so Father John spoke from Matthew 22, and I'll read that quickly. This is N.T. Wright's version. Jesus spoke to them once again in parables. The kingdom of heaven, he said, is like a king who made a wedding feast for his son. He sent his slave to call the invited guests to the wedding, and they didn't want to come. Again he sent other slaves with these instructions. Say to the guests, Look, I've got my dinner ready. My bulls and fatted calves have been killed. Everything is prepared. Come to the wedding. But they didn't take notice. They went off, one to his own farm, another to see his business. The others laid hands on his slaves, abused them, and killed them. The king was angry and sent his soldiers to destroy these murderers and burn down their city. Then he said to his slaves, The wedding is ready, but the guests didn't deserve it. So go to the roads leading out of town and invite everyone you find to the wedding. The slaves went off into the streets and rounded up everyone they found, bad and good alike, and the wedding was filled with party-goers. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there was a man who wasn't wearing a wedding suit. My friend, he said, how did you get in here without a wedding suit? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, tie him up, hands and feet, and throw him into the darkness outside, where people weep 
and grind their teeth. Many are called, you see, but few are chosen. And that's from the first 14 verses of Matthew chapter 22. So, Father John, do you want to explain uh, what you saw in this passage? Yeah, it's a, a very familiar story, but I happened this week to be reading through Father Stephen D. Young's series on the book of Enoch, and he mentions in passing that the phrase, bind him hand and foot, is an exact quotation from the 10th chapter of the book of Enoch. So for my listeners, the book of Enoch was written somewhere between maybe 300 to 100 B.C. The name Enoch is a reference to the figure we find in Genesis, who is said to have walked with God and was no more. In other words, he didn't die. He was just taken up into heaven. Though we know this Enoch was not the one who wrote this book, it was very common in the ancient world to use names like that when you wrote uh, works. So the section that Father John is talking about is the fall of the angels. And we know the angels fell, and in Genesis it says that they came and lusted after uh, human women. And so it's talking about the corruption that these angels brought among mankind. So here I'm going to read a portion, kind of starting just a bit before chapter 10. I'm starting here in chapter 7, and this is talking about those fallen angels. And they taught them magical medicine, incantations, the cutting of roots, and taught them about plants. So the giants turned against the people in order to eat them, and they began to sin against birds, wild beasts, reptiles, and fish. And their flesh was devoured, the one by the other, and they drank blood. And then the earth brought an accusation against their oppressors. In Azazel, so pay attention to this, Azazel is the name of one of these fallen angels, and he'll come up again. And Azazel taught the people the art of making swords and knives and shields and breastplates. And then if you skip to chapter 9, it says, You see what Azazel has done, how he has taught all forms of oppression upon the earth. And they revealed eternal secrets, which are performed in heaven, and which man learned. The whole earth was filled with blood and oppression. And now, behold, the Holy One will cry, and those who have died will bring their suit up to the gate of heaven. And then finally, in chapter 10, we kind of get the conclusion to the story of Azazel. And it says, And the Lord said to Raphael, Bind Azazel hand and foot, and throw him into the darkness. And he made a hole in the desert, which was in Dudael, and cast him there. He threw him on top of a rugged and sharp rocks. And the earth shall be cleansed from all pollution, and from all sin, and from all plague, and from all suffering. And it shall not happen again, that I shall send these upon the earth, from generation to generation, and forever. So, Father John, tell us what you saw in the binding of the man at the wedding banquet, in the binding of Azazel. It was, as far as I could see, a pure coincidence that I happened to run across that at the same time as the passage was going to be coming up in the lectionary readings that we would do. But it it prompted me to look more closely at the two of them together, this usage of the word, because I think uh, that's deliberate on Jesus's part, because as we we all know, Enoch forms a, a significant aspect of the rhetorical, imaginative frame that uh, Second Temple Judaism in Jesus' day inhabits. And, I, and for my listeners, I think this is a really important point that Father John is making, that when pastors or priests or historians are looking at the New Testament and trying to figure out what it means, one of the tools we use is trying to figure out the worldview 
of Jesus and his contemporaries. This would be the, the Judeans or the Jews at the Second Temple. And we have literature written by them that didn't make scripture, but we still have the literature that gives us kind of an idea of how they saw their world and how they understood it, which helps, which helps us put Jesus in his context. Not only helps us put Jesus in his context, but it also enriches a lot of what he's saying, because there's so much that is not explicitly stated, but implied in the story. So if you look at at the 10th chapter of Enoch and compare it with the, the parable of the banquet that you just read, you see a lot of parallels. The story that Jesus tells contours, maps pretty neatly onto the 10th chapter. And so it seems pretty clear that Jesus is very explicitly alluding to that, drawing it in. And so then the question that what is interesting to me is, what is Jesus adding to it? Or what is Jesus inflecting here that makes his parable a significant addition to uh, the familiar story from Enoch? There were a few things that I, I think really significantly added to it. The first is going back to the hand and foot, bind him hand and foot. In, the, in, the, in Enoch, it is Azazel whom God commands the archangel Raphael to be bound, who to bind. Azazel is the prince of the demons, and he commands that he be bound hand and foot and cast into the darkness. And then a number of different images for the waste, the desert, are used to describe where he's going to be cast, which is interesting when you get to that passage where it says that one of the goats at Yom Kippur is set, uh, sent to Azazel. And that's an interesting subject for another time. So there's an explicit connection Jesus is making between the one who has no suit, as N.T. Wright says it, and yeah. Azazel, the prince of the demons, who bears all the blame in Enoch for human beings having learned a lot of illicit knowledge, the making of weapons, witchcraft, magic, sorcery, those kinds of things. Azazel is said to have spearheaded the rebellion and encourage those things to be taught. And so Jesus is making an explicit connection between the one who has no suit and Azazel. And that's, the, that's an interesting thing to reflect upon. And they also mention oppression there, which I think is really interesting because the robe or the suit. The wedding garment, as we say. Yeah, the wedding garment is the garment of righteousness. And that's something that's picked up on in the scriptures that we also repeat a lot in, in our liturgical services, particularly in baptism. Uh, the robe of light, the robe of righteousness, the robe of glory. And one of the defining characteristics of that righteousness is that it expresses the justice of God, which is fundamentally opposed to the oppressor, to anyone who oppresses another. And so uh, you can see there a way in which a person could be connected to Azazel, despite the obvious ontological difference through the act of oppression, not just through learn, doing the things or participating the things that Azazel is purported to have taught humans to do, but also through perpetuating oppression and be, you know, essentially taking on a, on a microcosmic scale the, the role of Azazel. Yeah, and I think you know, for those who are familiar with Father Paul Tarazi's work, especially in his latest book, uh, The Rise of Scripture, he talks about how the Old Testament, in his in his idea, rose against the the Hellenistic kingdoms, which were oppressing the the Semites, the people at the time. And of course, in the New Testament, we see that with the Romans now putting their their boot on top of the of the Judeans, kind of oppressing them. And so you see this, whether it's in the Beatitudes or whether it's in Matthew twenty five, this concern for the least of these, the poor. And here you kind of see God's justice being played out against Azazel. The one who oppresses is now being cast out. 
a way of bringing righteousness or justice into the world. Yeah. And, you know, going back to the Romans and to the Hellenistic kingdoms, another interesting element of this that I mentioned is in Jesus's command to go out and to bring in any who would come, the good and the bad. This is, uh, of course, a reference to the ingrafting of the Gentiles into the, into the kingdom of God. Th- that's one particular aspect of Israel's vocation that the Pharisaic tradition had abandoned, was this notion of the ingrafting of the d- d- Gentiles, of the, uh, the salvation of the nations. So one of the, you know, if you put Enoch and the parable of the banquet side by side and, and you ask, what is it that the parable of the banquet is adding to Enoch here. It, one of those things is a, not only is Jesus announcing that he is about to bind Satan, that he is about to complete the conquest over the, uh, the fallen angels, but he is, annou- he is renewing the call, renewing Israel's vocation to the, na- to the nations, uh, specifically repudiating that impulse in Pharisaic Judaism, which wanted to uh, abandon that vocation. So that's another interesting aspect, I think, of what we see happening here when they parallel the two. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it reminds me of like uh, Isaiah's banquet, you know, where all the nations are being gathered in this uh, on the mountain to partake of the banquet. And, it, and I think shockingly to some of the, the readers of Isaiah, it says that God will make priests of some of these folks, you know, who are non-Judean, non, non-Levite, which I think is very interesting. It really cuts of, against the grain of, of the way that they thought Gentiles could be incorporated even in a limited way at, mm-hmm. at the time of the Second Temple, which was essentially as uh, righteous second-class citizens. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this also reminds us that in the end, when God comes to set things right, what that will look like. And you kind of made a reference to this, uh, this kind of this inclusion of Azazel by telling a story about Babe Ruth and kind of how, how this yeah. points towards the end. Do you want to give the listeners that story? I think it's important homiletically to periodically remind people of the, the majesty and the glory of, a, of the God we worship. And uh, so I described what Jesus is doing here in this parable as essentially calling his shot. And I used an example, uh, the example of Babe Ruth. And this is, uh, this is a story about Babe Ruth that m- dates from his heyday. He's coming up to bat and somebody, some uh, sarcastic person says, Babe, where are you going to hit it? And uh, Babe, whether he heard him or not, takes his bat and he points out toward left center field into the stands. And then the pitch comes in and he hits it right where he said he would. And of course, everyone is in awe of the fact that Babe could say ahead of time, this is what I'm going to do. And you can do whatever you want to try and stop me, but I'm going to do it. There's there's a, a level of power, of mastery, of just awesomeness there that we're all easily impressed by. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. He is saying he is announcing the same things to the to the fallen angels uh, that are behind all of the corruption in Israel. He's telling them exactly what he's going to do, and they can't stop him. <laughs> there was another thing you mentioned in your sermon that, that I really liked was you talked a little bit about what the robe represents. Uh, you know, this this Azazel or this figure that's cast out of the banquet doesn't have the wedding garment. It, he doesn't have the, the wedding suit, as N.T. Wright said. And you went into kind of thinking about it as righteousness, and then you talked about generosity. I was wondering if you could say a few more words about that. The robe of righteousness is, is the free gift of God. You know, you go back to the, uh, the story of Samson, the judge in the Old Testament, and there's a wedding and he gives clothes to everyone, you know, and this is, this is a, an expression of his generosity, his magnanimity 
and his wealth. The image, again, drawn here from the wedding banquet, draws on a lot of different images from the Old Testament, and that's one of them. The robe is given as a gift to all the guests. No one is expected to provide their own because the king provides for you. So the one who comes without it is one who has decided they don't want to wear the king's gift. They don't want it. Uh, they'll wear whatever they feel like, thank you very much. <laughs> so the gift has been given to them, but they eschew it. They push it away in favor of their own preferences, in favor of their own tastes, in favor of their own desires. It, it isn't, uh, it's, it's a remarkable, uh, this is why uh, the king is, is severe with the person, not only because uh, it's not simply that through no fault of their own they didn't have it, but that they have scorned the gift of the king, which was freely given, and for no other reason than that he wanted his house to be full. I, I think that's a really important point and something I think that brings it into the present and speaks something to us today. You know, this isn't just a passage, oh, okay, Jesus told this story. It kind of relates to these passages in Enoch. Um, okay, like, what do we do with this? And I think hitting on the idea that this is telling us something about God's grace uh, of what he gives to us, the, the gift of life, the forgiveness of sins, the rescue that we get from death, uh, these sorts of things, and that God freely grants that to us, but we still have to, you know, as as it says in the New Testament, we still have to kind of work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. We have we have to accept this gift, put on the wedding garment, in other words, I guess would be the, the visual image. Yes. And there is that important synergistic dimension, but it's it's the king who gives us the garment and the, you know, we we get it from him. And then we of course do our best to care for it, to wear it. And you know, if you wanted to keep using imagery, you might say you, you know, you do your best to try to lose a little weight so that you fit into it nicely. <laughs> uh, but the gift the, the the garment itself comes from comes from God, the gift of and this, you know, it, this is this goes all the way back to the garden. Uh, to the to the robes that clothed the robe of glory that clothed Adam and Eve before the fall. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, Father John, if you could give us a summary of the big picture of what happens when you bring this text from Enoch together with this parable about the wedding feast, this parable that explains the kingdom. If there is one overarching big picture that comes from this, what would you say that is? Everything is given what belongs to it. Corruption and death are sent back to where they belong, and righteousness and holiness are reinstantiated, reaffirmed where they're supposed to be. And that's our hope as Christians. And that's the, that's the vision of the kingdom, is everything in its right place. Amen. So I, I think that's a good place uh, to pause. So again, I want to thank you, Father John, for being here with us. And, thank you so uh, much for having me. You.